In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> well, hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho capitalist perspective. Tonight, we're going to have a special guest, and we will introduce him in just a moment when we get to the last nighter's portion of the show. But before we do that, I wanted to let you know that we're going to talk about Smallfoot, the uh, computer animated movie about yetis that's meant for kids, but has like a really um, strong message that is the impetus for the show. So this will be a fun discussion, and it will be episode 112 of the podcast. You can find the show notes more at actualanarchy.com slash 112. Say hello to Robert real quick before we go to that last nighter's portion of the show. Hey, babies. What's happening, everybody? Glad to be here. Thank you for having me on the show, Daniel. Hey, you're welcome. And uh, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this on the last nurse portion a, a while back or the actual anarchy portion. So I'll just say it now. I finally got my Windows 10 machine working again. Yes. So I am super impressed with myself. It's almost accidental wow. how I solved it. Um, I was doing stuff that I had no idea uh, how to fix. I was watching videos and reading articles on how to fix and all of these things. And everything was telling me that I'm going to have to like get a new boot drive or a new install of the OS and lose all of my files and everything. And I almost gave up. It was like three weeks of this. And I finally dedicated some time, spent way too much time on it, but I ended up in the boot drive area on the, you know, um, uh, emergency screen or whatever the hell you can get into by hitting F8, like 50 times. Um, I just had it redirect to a new boot file and it worked. Look at you. Yeah, and none of the articles, none of the, videos, man. none of the articles, none of them said to do this. I just did it accidentally because I accidentally deleted something. I was like, oh God, I hope I didn't destroy this thing. Anyway, it works now and that's why I'm I'm on the camera and everything's looking looking solid. It's got the little blurry effect on the uh, our chroma cam because they upgraded that with new artificial intelligence to make it find more human uh, objects. Anyway, I don't know why I'm telling everyone this. This should all be bonus content for our Patreon supporters who, by the way, do get bonus content even better than this. And you can support us at Patreon at actualanarchy.com slash Patreon. But let's move on to the uh, last matters portion of the show, shall we? Mm-hmm. 
everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, the Last Nighters, and we're going to talk about Smallfoot tonight with a special guest, Rocky Ferenberg of the Noisemaker Podcast of and also other famous things. But uh, before we get to him, I want to mention that we are part of the Launchpad Media, and so you can find this show and many more at thelaunchpadmedia.com, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. This is episode 55 of the show. You can find the show notes more at lastnighters.com slash 55. Hello, Robert. And then let's introduce uh, Rocky. Ask him about... Uh, well, here, you ask oh, him to describe yeah? himself uh -huh. after okay. you say how you are. Oh. <laughs> Well, I'm a little bit sore, but I'm excited to be here. I don't, I don't really have to do anything but sit in this chair and flap my gums. So, hey, Rocky, how's it going, man? <laughs> Very short introduction. Well, everything's going great over here. I uh, getting ready. This is my uh, technically my Sunday, so I get to get back to work at uh, about three o'clock in the morning. So, hitting the grind, trying to make that money, and uh, you know, taking care of business. This five five on three off schedule I just started this year is uh it's nice and horrible all at the same time you cram what how many same hours into, how many hours into five days uh in a five-day period typically do be somewhere around 60 70 hours so and then i also go to, i go to school full-time getting ready to graduate uh i got i actually got five associates degrees from the uh, community college here two more bachelor's degrees from uh, washington state this year and uh also run the podcast noisemaker podcast I blog a little bit uh, about recovery. Then I also write for Think Liberty and uh, got a couple articles posted on being libertarian. Also had some stuff published with the Rouser and, you know, number of other stuff. So write for a local music magazine, also playing a local band, father, you know. <laughs> There's some more things probably somewhere. In there what do you do in your ample free time? Right? <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of hats there, Rocky. Uh, uh, I know. And where can our audience find you? Do you, you have a website? It's RockyFerenberg.com. Is that right? Yeah, Rocky Ferenberg, F is in Frank, E-R-R-E-N-B as in boy, U-R-G. And I try to consolidate as much of my stuff right there into one place. So, All right. And how long have you been at school? It sounds like that many degrees. It's probably at least eight years. And uh, to quote Tommy Boy, I think I think they're called doctors. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been there. Um, I've been in college for about seven years yeah i mean it's uh it's been all right you know i mean it's it's boxes to check um a lot of stuff is a lot of um i, I argue with a lot of my uh professors i spend a lot of time what i've come to realize is that i i use a lot of the discussion board areas to uh present libertarian ideas so a lot of my degrees a lot of my classes are in the criminal justice field and in the political science field so in there i talk about a lot of uh um, you know, basically uh, minimizing the size of government, and I counteract a lot of people's uh, ideas that they have about the state. Uh, I spend a lot of time on the discussion boards, not arguing. I usually argue with the professors, but I, I try to present information to the other students in the class that might possibly give them um, an alternative viewpoint that they're not going to hear from a lot of other people. And I get a lot of people that resonate to me and and follow my discussion boards quite a bit. So. I think there I'd like to think there's been some kind of change affected in that in that realm, you know. Right. Yeah, and that's smart. That sounds a lot like um I don't do this as much and I I always say that I'm trying to cut back and I actually have cut back at this point, but getting into Facebook debates with people, you never really convince your adversary and and or whoever you're debating with, but it's always there for the audience, you know, the other people who kind of watch along and sometimes it's um it's helpful you can I actually got a bunch of friend requests as a result of other people seeing me make points against some statist argument and they're like, Oh yeah, you know, that guy was totally crazy. 
<laughs> and and all that. But anyway, this is a, ostensibly a show about movies, so we should probably get into it on Smallfoot. And we usually start out with the Google description. So if you guys are ready, I can go ahead and do that. Let's do it. All right. Smallfoot came out 2018. It's a fantasy slash musical. One hour, 40 to 49 minutes. 6.7 on the IMDb, 76% Rotten Tomatoes, and 4.4 out of 5 on the old Facebook. And 92% of the Google users like it. Here's the description. Migo is a friendly Yeti whose world gets turned upside down when he discovers something that he didn't know existed, a human. He soon faces banishment from his snowy home when the rest of the villagers refuse to believe his fantastic tale. Hoping to prove them wrong, Migo embarks on an epic journey to find the mysterious creature that can put him back in the good graces of his or with his simple community. Uh, the director was Carrie Kirkpatrick. Uh, came out just September 28th of last year. Box office of $214 million on a budget of $80 million, uh, starring the likes of Channing Tatum, LeBron James, Danny DeVito, Common, and a few other folks. And I'm sure that we're going to upset some people because I did not mention any women. But anyway, <laughs> um, Robert, your take on the uh, Google description. And then let's go to Rocky with um, your take and also why you suggested this movie to us. So, Robert, first. Well... How about that? Um, I didn't know that um, Facebook was a new aggregate of movie opinion. I assume there's some kind of centralized thing where they go in and vote on movies. That's And then Google's pulling that. Okay. Um, so, yeah, the movie was... I saw it in the theater originally, and it struck me by how mature the storyline was. I'm sure that there are other, you know, animated films like the you know, like uh, <clears throat> up or say like, you know, some other kind of, you know, wall E, I suppose, or maybe some other kind of uh, high minded stuff. Well, not necessarily high minded, but you know what I mean? Like, it's not just some kids movie like it is, but it's got more to it than that. And then, so that's what kind of struck me about this whole thing. Um, I think it's really interesting that it has some kind of uh, libertarian slash kind of anarcho kind of ideas in the way that they police their society. Um, it's sort of. I mean, I think we'll we'll probably talk about that a little bit. It's not really clear in the movie, but they use ostracism as the main means of controlling the population, which is really exciting to me. So, uh, but anyway, I want to hear Rocky's thoughts on why he thought that this was a good movie to talk about. I agree with him, but I want to hear what you have to say, sir. Well, that um, I started watching this movie with my my daughters. They were really interested in uh, in watching this movie, and so we sat down to watch it as a family, and. Uh, once again, we get into it a little bit more, but uh, the whole idea on on the stones and um, the methodology that they go about trying to uh, protect their community, uh, I found that to be uh, really interesting um, and almost like a subliminal level of uh, you know telling kids that we have to um, abide by. Uh, specific rules that these, you know, higher ups dictate to us, despite the fact that everything changes in the end. I mean, with Disney movies and these animated movies, I mean, everything turns out good and everybody's happy in the end. And there's always, you know, that the happily ever after thing. But, um, but yeah, just the whole idea of, you know, um, we have this, we have this list of rules and you must abide by these list of rules and you can't question them. I thought that was a, what uh, once again, a pretty deep, uh, topic to put into a kids movie. Yeah, I have to agree with you. It really was this, you know, this this idea of this noble lie that they and I'm just going to go ahead and spoil it all right now, but <laughs> the uh, the rune keeper, like I guess yeah, the stone keeper, I guess they call him, has yeah. 
essentially have invented all these laws that have the villagers all maintaining and working towards their own deception, towards their own ignorance of the state of the world. And they have to obey with blind obedience. And it's all for their own, essentially, protection. And is it ever okay to lie for the, you know, for this noble idea of keeping everybody safe? It's, it's, it's almost an idea of an argument for the, like, the CIA and how they, all they do is lie. But they're supposedly lying to protect everybody. So I, I want to get Daniel's thoughts on things. I want to get into all this, but I thought this is a really kind of rich topic of discussion from just this kind of simple animated movie. Yeah, you know, I think it's, it is interesting because the intention behind the lie is that there's a danger out there that has presented itself. And so he needs a way to get people to, or the other characters, I'm going to call them people, refer to them, they're basically civilization <laughs> here. <laughs> They might identify as people. Um, <clears throat> so they kind of need to have some... He, he's basically babying them. Like, like how, Rock, you've got kids, I've got kids. You need to protect them until they're fully capable of making decisions on their own. Unfortunately, in this scenario, he's doing this to fully grown adults within this society that they live in. And so I think that by the resolution at the end where he basically reveals what the danger actually is and allows them to choose for themselves what they want to do about it is a good resolution. Um, and so I'm going to argue against the noble lie here because it allows him to basically centrally plan their community, regiment their days, what their jobs are going to be when they wake up. Uh, and it's all mixed in this uh, religious type of cover you know, that gives him legitimacy or authority. And so I think that that's trying to make the, the civilization like basically be automatons. You know, they're not individuals in, in how they can be in their lives. I mean, of course, they, they're, they still have their own distinct personalities in the movie, but um, it, it's not something that I think they're really living their lives to the fullest until the end when, when the facade falls away and they realize what is the supposed danger and then they can choose for themselves what to do about it. Yeah, I find it hard to argue against that. That's essentially my take on it. But I do want to ask you about, and I, I want to, if, if Rocky's got any more further thoughts on this, I don't want to cut him off. But I do want to ask you about how you felt, because, you know, in, in my ideal society, you know, ostracism and societal pressures would function to maintain cohesion and balance and, you know, a sense of peace and normalcy. Well, and, I, I actually want to, I actually want to interject here because <laughs> one thing that you were talking about with the ostracism, I, I enjoy that idea too. And just a quick blurb, the ostracism though didn't come from the community, the, the Yeti community there. It actually came from the stone keeper, which even the first stone in the movie says to not question the stone keeper. So therefore you have this dictatorial leader that you cannot contradict and he's the one that ostracized uh, Migo in the movie. It wasn't the community. In fact, if you watch, whenever you watch the movie, the other Yetis there kind of look onward to him as in why, you know, we don't want him to be gone, you know. And so I think that there's what you're talking about is correct. But I think where where the ostracism came from in the movie is more uh, nefarious than than what you're getting at. Right. And it just shows how effective it is. It's so good that even the statists is going to use it. <laughs> Yeah, so I completely agree with you. Um, I, I want to e equally further point out that, yeah, Migo's crime was essentially blasphemy. He wasn't, yeah. you know, he was contradicting what some made up law was, where the law contradicted reality. And he said, oh, no, no, this is reality. And so 
even though it is ostracism, it's for this really messed up reason. Yeah, but, and in fact, oh, they uh, they gaslight him in the process. Sorry, what, Daniel? They gaslight him in the process. They make him think he's crazy. Yes, they and do. So to not believe his own yeah. eyes. Right, absolutely they do. But are they still in the right? Like if the entire village all agrees, hey, we don't want to hang you, hang out with you for this specific reason, for this charge of blasphemy, even though you're totally in the right, but we don't care about that. Are they still in the right for ostracizing him? Well, in a real world example, let's look at something. I mean, an argument that I see all the time is, uh, you know, if, if somebody is uh, if somebody is a racist, a barber, then it would be the in a more libertarian or anarcho society. It would be the job of the community to no longer uh, uh, purchase this barber services, therefore running him out of business, pushing him out of the community. So I guess the, the flip side to that, it, it would be. Um, if uh, you have a, a racist barber and everybody likes that racist barber, is it okay to keep that barber and push other people of uh, the, you know, whatever the race may be, if it was Chinese, push all the Chinese people out of that town. If it's a, you know, uh, if it's, if everybody agrees to it, is it okay for a whole town to be racist? Right. Is it okay? I think, I think if everybody <laughs> has the preference of having a non-Chinese barber, then that's perfectly fine. It's, I mean, who are we to judge somebody else's in-group preferences? As long as you're doing it voluntarily, if I want to go and live in a community with only Inuit Eskimos, you know, and they go, no, I'm sorry, we don't want any white people here. Are they in the wrong? I don't know. If, I mean, if, if, if there's somebody that's voluntarily going to sell me a piece of property there, but if, you know, I guess it comes down to force, of course, right? I mean, if, if they're actually forcing me go out of the village, because I don't think they actually do. They just tell them you're not welcome here anymore. You're banished they just tell him that they don't actually like physically assault him and like throw him out. No, the uh, the other guy, the kind of dopey hipster guy who rides the oh, uh, right. stonekeeper's son, he kind of blocks him from coming in, but there's no physical altercation. Right. But yeah, it's sort of that underlying threat, though. <laughs> yeah, although yeah. what they would really do, yeah, it's hard to say, but yeah, they do kind of say, and it is uh, in the very beginning of the movie, they do say that the laws are written in stone and enforced by the stonekeeper, although exactly what enforced means by the stonekeeper more seems to be like social shaming than like him grabbing a club and like beating somebody up. Right, yeah. Now I wanted to get back to the automaton kind of point I was making in the opening here, because uh, I wrote in my notes that essentially what they're trying to have here is what in economics we would call an evenly rotating economy, which is really just a construct of the mind so that you can um, sort of work out what might happen if certain factors were to change in that. But essentially, you'd end up with no progress and no change, like everything would be consistent and the same. And it would be a very high time preference society, like there'd be no reason to save for the future or to accumulate capital or to innovate or do anything uh, to progress. So you would you would have no elongation of the structure of production. You'd have no increased efficiency in your um, ability to produce goods. And so you would have a stagnant society that would stay at a primitive level. And that is, uh, of course, what a lot of um, socialists don't realize what they're advocating for, but that's that's where it would end up. Yeah, and the movie kind of presents that, right? I mean, even though they're on a mountaintop and whatever, we don't know how old this society is. They have this kind of fancy machinery underneath, but above ground, they're basically living in caves. Well, also what a lot of that is, is that it all the innovation, all the... Um all the uh, creativity obviously has come from the stone keepers to, you know, have this set up in a way that they, they, they feel the myth themselves. I think somebody else said something about that a little earlier, you know, the whole, the whole uh, setup, everybody's job, though it's menial builds into feeling that lie. 
the one big question that I had about, especially that underground area where they were, you know, turning the ice into steam to kind of separate the Yetis and the people. Um, I want to know that if nobody knew about it, who built all that stuff underneath the mountain? Because they had to keep it all a secret. So who built all that? I mean, you know, I that was obviously there's no answer to that question. But I found that kind of uh, maybe a, a plot hole in the story. Yeah, it kind of implies that there were like, yes, stone keepers. They were like over the hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years just digging away at it, building it slowly. <laughs> but they would have had it all built it all at one time, right? Because you I have don't think have so. the, the clouds to block off the view of the rest of the world. I don't know. Yeah, I think it would have to be an intergenerational thing where, I mean, the whole impetus for the for the concealment of their society was that when they did interact with humans before, they were hunted and there was violence and altercations. And so that society, that generation of the Yetis all experienced that. And those that survived must have created this artificial structure, this uh, religious and intellectual mysticism to maintain this facade. And then future generations, you know, new new members of the society being born into it would have been trained indoctrinated indoctrinated in their um, government school <laughs> to it, not it really question them. It really reminded me of The Village. Yeah. Do you remember that movie? Sure. You know, it really reminded me of, of The Village. So I, I kind of had that, that, I, that theme running through. I mean, obviously it's completely different as well, but yeah, having that isolated lie, you know, anyway, I just thought that was worth mentioning. Right. And then it also, you know, gave, um, gave the stonekeeper like this noble cause in his own head that he was doing something for the people, even by doing evil things. And Robert and I, we've talked about this before, but even the worst tyrants in history all thought they were doing something good. You know, they weren't like, oh, how nefarious can I be? <laughs> you know, they were they were trying to accomplish something and they thought they were doing good for their country or their people or whatever. And, uh, you know, it just turns out that monstrous things were happening as a result of them trying to achieve their goals. And I've got a really uh, somewhat lengthy Murray Rothbard quote that I think is relevant here. So if, if you guys will indulge me for a moment. Sure. All right. This is Rothbard. One of the crucial factors that permits governments to do the monstrous things they habitually do is the sense of legitimacy on the part of the stupefied public. The average citizen may not like, in fact, may even strongly object to the policies and exactions of his government. But he has been imbued with the idea, carefully indoctrinated by centuries of government propaganda, that the government is his legitimate sovereign and that it would be wicked or mad to refuse to obey its dictates. It is this sense of legitimacy that the state's intellectuals have fostered over the ages, aided and abetted by all the trappings of legitimacy, flags, rituals, ceremonies, awards, constitutions, etc. And in the pre-show, Rocky, we were talking about your visit to uh, Mount Rushmore, and that yeah. ties <laughs> right into this. So um, <laughs> anyway, I thought that quote was uh, really relevant uh, when I ran into it. I, I had to throw it into my notes and... Um, I, I, I don't know. What are you guys' thoughts, Robert? Well, I don't know about that quote too much. I mean, Rothbard said some great things, of course. But um, I was just off in my own head thinking about just the way that this movie, you know, how we always say that government is a religion and the state is essentially, you know, the figureheads and they're the, like the priest class and that sort of thing. In this movie, like the government is the definitely the priest class and they're kind of one in the same. And everybody looks to this one priest person as the kind of like ruler of society. Although, you know, one without necessarily like overt violence where the state is. And I don't know if I wouldn't prefer that. I think I would prefer that. Like, you know how Jordan Peterson says, you know, you take away Christianity. If you dump, you know, religion, what fills the gap? What fills that hole in society? And it's almost always government. And man, I would, I think I'd prefer, I think I'd prefer like this noble lie. 
than at least if it's in that sense. Even though it is, they're they're all treating us like children. All of them do. Government does. The priests do. Everybody treats us like children, as if they have some kind of specialized knowledge or specialized ability that only they have, or for some noble purpose that we just can't see or whatever. They feel the desire or the need <clears throat> rule over us through some noble purpose or whatever reason. Um, I don't know. What what would you prefer, Daniel? I, I mean, I'd prefer obviously a private property based, you know, free society, but. Well, are you basically saying like having the religion and the government kind of intertwined or having a separation between the two? Which would I prefer? Well, at least, at least shit this sandwich one or poop sandwich? At least this one doesn't like pretend to not be. You know what I mean? Like he's openly like a priest. He's coming up with these godly laws straight from his own mind or whatever, but he, at least he's not, you know, forcing anybody to do anything. So are you saying... Um, Perhaps it's more of the king argument that we were having in the outlaw king when we had um, the anarcho Viking on. He was talking about the Hans Hermann Hoppe, like between a monarchy and a democracy, monarchy would have preferential outcomes due to the factors of wanting to maintain the capital stock of, of the kingdom and and not looting it for just a period of years before they're out and those types of things. Right. I mean, so in this movie, the. Um... They're essentially isolationists, right? They're they're like Japan pre Meiji area. Like they're they're like serious Trump border wall people. They they have this cloud which not only protects them from the humans and the humans from them, but that's like the, the modern media, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So at the very end, <laughs> at the very end, they go down the mountain, like the, all of them, and they meet up with the humans. And we're led to believe that this is going to lead to a you know a, an exchange of ideas and blah 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 and like peaceful coexistence, that sort of thing. And I don't know if they wouldn't be better off, you know, staying up on the mountain. I don't know. Well, the one thing it doesn't say... Government? The, the human government? That's not... <laughs> well, the one thing they don't say in there, it doesn't actually say if the Stonekeeper enacted uh, any type of force on the Yetis to make them all come down. It seemed like it was assumed that... Um, given new information that all the Yetis were willing to come down and try to coexist with the people. Um, and then what was also interesting about that exchange at the very end, which was really brief, is that you almost had like the state come up and try to enforce a barrier between the citizens of the, the humans and the Yetis. And it was the people that went between the, the government, the state, in order to uh, you know reach back out to the Yetis. And I thought that exchange was... Um, was really unique and really different because it wasn't necessarily like the government coming to them or anything. It was um, it was this group of people that you know basically broke through this human shield that they had up at that point. So, uh, but you know, if the if the stonekeeper enacted force in order to bring them down there, telling them that they had to had to go down there to you know meet these people, then uh, uh, then yeah, force would be enacted. But if it was voluntary, uh, I don't necessarily see a hundred percent of a problem with that. Yeah, I just. I don't see a problem with it from the terms, from the sense of the stonekeeper, but I just have to worry about these people living in an essentially voluntary society now interacting with humans. And, you know, we humans don't have a great track record with, like the movie depicts, with, with, with the, you know, this kind of cryptozoological creatures or, you know, big creatures in general. We, we, we would put things like that in a zoo. Yeah. We put, we put you know, gorillas and chimpanzees, which are... <laughs> super smart animals we lock them in cages and i'm not necessarily totally against it as a libertarian i mean it's, it's a human philosophy not necessarily an animal philosophy but i've argued many times about the uh, the sentience of other creatures if we don't treat them with you know respect then what gives them the right to 
you know, why should we expect that kind of treatment from any other sentient creatures to us? So I think it would, I would think it would turn out badly for the Yetis. I think that these things would be, you know, kind of King Konged and maybe even locked up and put in cages and put on shows and people declare them their property. I, I see. I foresee bad things happening to these poor yetis. Well, the movie. Human well, ravages by the human savages. I should do that in a sing-songy voice because there are a lot of songs <laughs> in this one. Well, the the thing that I'm curious about is is it seems like there's a lot of uh, support for the yeti community uh, uh, coming from you, Robert. And I'm, so my question is, <laughs> if 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 no, no, seriously. So the, the other question is, they had the human. They went to take the human away, and uh, what was the quote? They told. The uh, stonekeeper told M- Migo that he did a good thing and that he did his job whenever he basically went back out and lied to the Yetis to keep this lie. But then right. they took the human that was dying away in a little cage. And right. the um, stonekeeper's daughter is the one that took him and, and, and took him back down to the world. But my question is, what were they going to do with this human? Because it didn't seem like they were going to return him to his home. It doesn't seem like they were a very civilized community either. It seems like they would kill another – they would kill this human – you know, because it was just a yak, they would kill this human in order to maintain this noble lie. So once again, where, how right. much, how much do we violate other people's rights or other animals' rights, other other creatures' lives, in order to you know keep the secret? When does it not become noble at that point? Yeah, I, all the more reason to stay separate. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, having watched the movie I, at the end, I was like, yeah, you know, two people coming together. You know, these people are smart, and we're going to find common ground and all that but i i you know i'm this is this is an interesting discussion i really it's, it's this is reaching the limits of my my brain power in terms of exactly how i feel about all this, this well, can is, i throw something at you robert yeah go ahead daniel all right well i i think that i would rather have the awareness of what the dangers are in the world like i want my kids to know to not go down that dark alley or to go to that rough neighborhood or to go to some you know war torn country i want them to be aware of it rather than just shield them from it like even what are you arguing for i'm arguing that this this yeti society should not have the lie but should have the information abundantly available and so the stonekeepers should have kept the village informed of the humans and the danger thereof well whatever would have happened you know in the market like it would have been a known thing that hey humans typically have been dangerous for us so let's make the yetis learn from our experience here and they can make their own decisions okay okay i i I agree with you to a certain extent however this is a kind of a unique scenario because you're dealing with yetis and not humans (laughs) so if they were humans and they're like okay we all understand the dangers of going out into the uh you know wider world and whatnot there's not a huge, massive amount of curiosity that's going to come pouring in from the world to this human little enclave. But if it's yetis and one yeti leaves, all of a sudden humans go, holy shit, yetis are real. Everybody, <laughs> check this shit out. It's blowing up on YouTube. It's blowing up on social media. Holy fucking ball. My brain is melting right now. They're real. We are going there tomorrow. <laughs> Me and a billion other people are going to this little shit splat town in the middle of nowhere <laughs> fucking place, and we're showing up on the front door of Yeti Central, and what do you think's going to happen? I don't know, man. <clears throat> Sounds like a bad news for the Yeti. Yeah, that, that's what that Percy character was actually trying to do, right? He was trying to drum up interest because he was part of the dinosaur media model, and his ratings were falling dramatically as a result of a pro- proliferation of competition. Yeah. And so he was I also really willing thought- to make a lie to uh, boost up his ratings. Yeah, I really thought that the lie um, 
the lying uh, theme ran really deep within the human storyline too, because uh, Patterson or Percy was out there and he was interested in creating a lie. And it was even, <clears throat> while it wasn't necessarily a noble lie at the same time, they were even discussing with his partner about, uh, you know, well, we, we create this lie so that we can generate revenue so that we can save the endangered animals, even though that wasn't necessarily his goal in the end, they still kind of had a noble lie element to, to their side as well. And I thought that was kind of interesting that obviously the, the writers, you know, for the screenplay kind of had this, this lying theme, but it was almost a different type of lie on both sides. Yeah. And I'll add one point to that. Um, and this is on the Wikipedia, so I don't know like firsthand account of this, but apparently the writers of the film used this lying. Um, it was sparked by the emergence of alternative facts with the Trump administration. <laughs> yeah. and so this was like a hashtag resist uh, written movie. Really? Well, if it's on Wikipedia, it can't be. It can't be a lie. <laughs> can't be wrong. Well, the, the other thing that I thought about, kind of getting back to where we were with Robert a minute ago, was you know, Michi asked if the if all the humans were bad, and uh, I think that uh, I think that there was a good relation to uh, foreign policy here, and I think that uh, you know they think that we are bad. We think that they're bad, and uh, the the different governments kind of keep us hating one another, and you know. When in actuality, we're more likely to have things in common. Now, obviously, Robert has the good the good point about you know this crypto cryptozoological creature. It'll be different if it was a uh, you know the Yetis and uh, uh, and people. But obviously, with what you're saying, it was it was a little bit more directed at the Yetis are the unknown people. You know, they, they're the people maybe on the other side of the wall that Trump wants to build, and so they're foreign to us. And so what we got to do is we got to try to, you know, tear down these walls and accept everybody as, you know, as who they are. And um, I just think that there's a uh, there's a, a lot of a, a tribalism in at least initially in the um, uh, the Yeti village. Yeah. yeah, I'd agree with that. And then also this kind of sparked an idea for me. And this might be a Ron Paul or a Scott Horton point that they make. And that is that the average person in the United States has more in common with the average person in Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, or, or anywhere else than we have with our own politicians, our own political class. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, and it, it, we've made that point many times in the sense that what reason do I have to go across, you know, thousands of miles and go fight and kill somebody if not for some government saying that this is the thing that needs to happen and this sense of patriotism that we need to all of a sudden hate or go and kill these other people. There's just no reason to. Right. And then speaking of um, the sort of resist movement here or the demonization of, I, I want to call it straw man of capitalism. Um, Percy is about to lose his house as a result of his poor rating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that, so, yeah. They, they call him the evil banker man because there was a variable interest rate that apparently Percy was too stupid to understand what that meant. <laughs> and so he's this helpless Even victim. It explains it in the thing of what it's called. <laughs> it's called a variable interest rate. It varies. What do you, what more do you want, Percy? So, oh, you know, there's great. a little bit of demonization of, of that whole concept. I mean, not, not that the banking structure is really what we would consider a free market system, but he was aware of what the terms were. And uh, yeah, he, yeah. he wanted to play the victim card there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's great. I actually, I didn't catch that at all. I mean, I heard him say that, but I didn't even think about, you know, that as being, <laughs> that's good shit. That's one of the things we do on the show. We'll take one throwaway <laughs> comment in a movie and <laughs> expound on it for like 10 minutes. <laughs> Well, the, the other thing that I had in my notes that I thought was kind of interesting, and I think we might have briefly talked on it, but um, 
they they just arbitrarily write new laws. They just arbitrarily he comes out and he's you know whenever they identify him as being a what do they call him a, a pygmy red coated yak or whatever you know and he holds it out and he has this red coated person on there and he sticks the uh, uh, the stone right on his which I, I don't know why he wears the stones but you know he clicks it right there and and puts it on with the stones so obviously one person can just arbitrarily write. Uh, any law and it doesn't necessarily say how the stone keepers because there are other stone keepers when they go down under uh, the mountain there's he it's showing some of the other stone keepers and stuff so it doesn't necessarily describe how this hierarchy is set up because it doesn't seem like his son or his daughter is in it doesn't make any reference to them being next in line to be stone keepers so um, you know it, it doesn't make any reference to that but I thought it was kind of interesting how it was once again, really dictatorial in that they could just arbitrarily write a law and then it just is what it is. Right. Yeah. And it's right away too. It's like whenever they deem it necessary, they just create a new law. And, and I, I think there was a direct lineage and, and that those were stone keepers of the past. And those were like statues in that little, you know, monument area in the, in the cavern. But anyway, Robert, go ahead. You were going to say well, something. But I was just going to add on that. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting the way it reminded me of like, you know, ceremonies of bills being written into law. So they're like, he wrote it on a little, you know, piece of stone or had it written down and then just as soon as he clicked it onto his shirt and he's like look you know it's in stone it's on my shirt now and then everybody was like oh, oh my god now it's like real now it's you know now that he's gone through the act of actually putting it on his shirt oh my god now it's like it's like official and shit and, you know it's the idea of some politician just making up a law and then as soon as they write it down then oh that's real and everybody else has to follow along it's i, you know, I wonder how many of those were theater of the history yeah, the theater yeah, of the right. state, indeed. I, I wonder how many of the stones were contradictory to themselves because, I mean, as, as we're all aware, in the United States, there are hundreds of thousands of laws and regulations, and, and many of them contradict each other. And so, but in this society, in the Yeti society, he's got a few hundred stones on him, and every single one of them is not to be questioned, right? They're supposed right. to be absolute truth. And they even make the point of, well, what if one of them's wrong? And, and if one of them does not bring all of them into question, which reminds me of some of the, the line of questioning in the, the Larkin Rose uh, Candles in the Dark uh, questioning series. You know, like if, if, if this one thing is wrong, then what else might be wrong about it? And uh, I'm just curious, uh, there's really no answer to this, but how many of those stones would contradict with other stones on the same thing? And if that would be enough to awaken these people or these yetis, nothing would have been able to awaken these people. <laughs> they believed in mammoths all the way down. And if you had any kind of odd thought that didn't, con you know, contradicted anything, you just got to push it down, push it down. But yeah, they they all do that, right? They all go, yeah, just push it down. I had a, I had a bad thought, push it down. Right. Yeah, and that, that reminds me of um, Stone 15, Ignorance is Bliss. Yeah. And I actually want to talk about this a little bit because this is a point that Robert, you and I have discussed at, at, at nauseum. Yes, yes. And that is, were you happier before I corrupted your mind? Yeah, of course I was. <laughs> of course I was. But I now think clearly, whereas before, you know, things didn't quite make sense. You know, you're looking at the political system and it just seems like a mess and a jumble. And, you know, certain people are sort of in favor of this sort of thing. And other people are sort of in favor of that sort of thing. And there's people sort of the little left and sort of the right, sort of more conservative, sort of more you know, liberal, but they'd all seem to kind of converge and do the similar things. And what's the actual principle at play? And, oh, there isn't one. And it's really just kind of cleared things up. And, you know, you talk to people 
and it seems like everybody's got a different sense of morality and it's just nice to have a really clear set of what you tolerate and what you don't and if you don't have that foundational awareness of what your principles are then you'll you know you could be persuaded to go along with pretty much anything and that's how government operates well, yeah the other thing that the other thing that I thought was really interesting about this was that you know I think that there's a lot of politicians, a lot of people in, in public office, a lot of the the ruling, the rulers, the ruling class, uh, you know, they've been red pilled just as uh, just as uh, some of us have. But you know, we I think that we reach a point, and it's almost like a Star Wars, uh, uh, you know, fork in the road at this point. When you get when you get red pilled, you can either be a stonekeeper or amigos. You know what I mean? It's it's you you can you reach this point where you decide you have this knowledge. So do you want to do evil or do you want to do good? And I, I think that that kind of happens for everybody when we when we reach that point and we see the world for what it is. Yeah, you know that that actually brings up a good point that we haven't even discussed yet, and that is the um, the the conspiracy group. I have it in my notes. I was yeah yeah right because in a way this this uh, movie almost you know normally in media calling something conspiracy theory is to discredit it and make it sound fantastical and crazy and 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 remove any rational discussion about that particular subject. But in this movie, they're basically validating the idea of a conspiracy theory or theorist, a group of people like speculating on what might be happening uh, and saying, yeah, they were actually correct and they're vindicated in this. Yeah, they're actually questioning the official narrative and they're right as opposed to, yeah, you're right. In every other piece of media, it's, oh, that's just a conspiracy theory. You can ignore that or only crazy people talk about that like Alex Jones. Well, they even made the movie Conspiracy Theory where they made, uh, uh, what was that, Tom Cruise or whatever, out to be a complete, yeah, they kind of gaslighted him in that as well. But, you know, with that, uh, uh, yeah, with the conspiracy theorists, it, the, the other crazy thing that I noticed, and it was just kind of a throwaway line in there as well, is that um, whenever she's talking about, uh, like, the small foot flying off the edge, she's writes out, I, I watched a few times because I wanted to see if it was an actual real formula, but it's just like Yeti speak or something like that. But she writes out a formula in Yeti, Yeti-ese uh, for uh, a formula for um, uh, gravity. Did you guys notice that? No, I missed it. Yeah, because she's talking about which direction did he go? Did he go up? Did he go to the, you know, did he fly straight out? And he, they said, no, he went down. And she said, yeah, uh, she went up and started writing something, said something along the lines of a, uh, it makes sense because uh, there's a pole that must take them downward or something like that. And I thought it was just kind of interesting that um, that these these people, including even the stonekeeper's daughter, are so ignorant to it, just the world around them because they've been sheltered by the stonekeeper that they don't even have any. Even the stonekeeper's daughter doesn't have any, can't even fathom the idea of of gravity. And only by questioning what they've been told do they actually make any progress. Robert, you still want to live in this society. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, Daniel, it's not the worst thing. If I had a, if I could move there tomorrow, except for the fact that it's like an anarcho-primitive society, which is not great. You know, I'm, I'm not a fan. Like you, the, earlier, you, you pointed out the whole, you know, the problem of stagnating technology in a socialist system. So I'm not happy about that. But, you know, with... <laughs> so it's not Galt's goal. It's just like going to the Amazon and finding a, a, a tribe never discovered. Right. It's not great, but at least... You're not being constantly threatened all the time. Hey, you got a dart in your neck. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, Can what's, we talk what's about the... one real dumb thing? I just want to mention just the dumb thing in this movie. There's probably other dumb things, but if you're going to design a society and it all depends on the lie 
being perpetuated. Why would you have one of the lies be, we need to ring this gong every morning before sunrise in order to make the sun go across the sky? Well, it's a snail. But as soon as somebody (laughs) oversleeps, the lie is exposed or somebody misses the gong, the lie is exposed. That's a pretty risky one. The movie but that is one risky thing if you got to keep this lie perpetuated in this society. I would not have that as one of my lies. Let me just cross generations, right? So many failure points. Right. They'll just Every write day. a new stone, man. They'll, they'll just write a new stone and then they're good. That's, Maybe, that's they all would. <laughs> Maybe they would, but uh, you're playing with fire. I don't know. Yeah, well, that's an amazing track record if they didn't have to have already written a new stone to explain that away. Yeah. Well, the... the uh, you know, maybe the reason why you want to move there is even the very first song they sing is actually called Perfection. And the whole theme of that song is where Shannon Tatum is talking about how perfect of a society in which they live. And this was this song, especially the second verse, was very um, was very socialistic. You know, the, the lyrics that I had pulled up here is look at everybody do their part. Uh, and they do it with a happy heart and it gives them all a sense of a greater purpose. Well, that's the way I want it to be. I want to make them all proud of me. Just be a steady Yeti you know, and deserve this. And it, it's, it's really like, um, you know, you have to keep your head down and you have to work for this, this greater cause and this greater good, you know, kind of like what you were talking about earlier, Dan, you know, not putting a, you know, there's no sense of innovation. There's no sense of, uh, of, of working for yourself or, or trying to achieve something great. Just keep your head down and, and be a steady Yeti. And I thought that was kind of, uh, kind of interesting. No, it right, sounds so, like living in Pol Pot's Cambodia. Or yeah, you finally achieved farm. you finally achieved the the noble uh, uh, new socialist yeti. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what it sounds like these guys have been totally conditioned. They are the new socialist yeti. Absolutely right. Dave. <laughs> oh, that's great. <clears throat> All right, well, we're we're getting a little long in the in the winter here on the show, so we usually start winding into. The final summary and review where we give a, a rating one through 10 and we go a decimal point deep. But if we have any other final points before we get into that, uh, say them now, speak them now or forever hold your peace. I have gone through all of my notes. I don't have anything really of significance. All right, Rocky, anything on your side? <clears throat> the only other thing that um, that I really had that I think is is uh, is noteworthy is I, I think that the the uh, miscommunication between Migos and uh, Peter Patterson was pretty interesting because, um, you know, you're, you're trying to they're trying to convey these ideas back and forth to one another. <clears throat> and uh, and, you know, even even the idea of uh, roasting him to warming him up, I think, was just just pretty interesting. I think it kind of harkens to the idea of um, of messaging. And as libertarians or ANCAPs, I think that we get lost in the way that we uh, present messages to uh, other people. You know, a lot of times people are, uh, you know, ANCAPs and, and libertarians can be very condescending, almost like we, we know better than, than other people. And but we, we do. Turn a lot of, <laughs> well, and, you know, but we, we can, can be autistic of, about it. It's true. And, and it's important to be able to, to message properly, because even though we think that we're getting something across the right way, um, you know, we might think that we're trying to warm somebody up. And in all actuality, they think we're trying to roast them. So I think that's a, a really important uh, thing to take away. You're right. Yeah. And I think that the movie did a very fine job of showing that from the different perspectives of the characters, because when Migo's perspective was presented, he was having a conversation trying to, con- you know, come in peace. But from Percy's perspective is like this giant monster is yelling and growling at him, you know, threatening him. Yeah. And yeah, they showed a lot of that uh, from from the other's perspective. And I thought that that was really, uh, really well done, really well conveyed. All right. I have one more thing. Uh-oh. Before we get into final summaries and reviews here. Uh, and that was the famous uh, Rahm Emanuel uh, 
never let a crisis go to waste idea, uh, which was sort of the impetus for the entire facade of, of the intellectual and religious cover for the mysticism and, and um, uh, hiding this society from the ravages of the savages of the humans. But there was a point where somebody cried out, we're sinking, we need to do something. And that sounded a lot to me like the climate alarmism and a reason to get everyone agitated and seeking a solution from government or from an authority figure, uh, because it's a problem that's too big for the individual. And so it must be a top-down solution. I don't remember this. When, what point in the movie was that? This is very near the end. And I think that it might have been maybe when the clouds went away or something like that. Mm. It was a throwaway line, and I'm I'm trying to make something out of it. But well, well no, I mean you got people that are indoctrinated and to always looking to an authority figure. Or I mean, I remember back in the day, I I think I was probably like ten or eleven. I think I asked my father, you know, Dad, why do we have these people that you know make laws and rule over us and stuff? I don't I don't know if I was a really like ANCAP kid or whatever, but I was just kind of curious about why does the world set up this way? Like, what is this? And I remember his answer was, Well, we need you need to you know have division of labor. He didn't say it in these words, but he said, you know, you know, you need to have people whose job it is to do that thing. Like this is a job that needs to be done. And so you, then you designate people to do that. And I think that's what most people believe. And most people believe that these people are doing necessary labor and you want to get something as a return for your money. So when something like this happens, that is big, you generally knee jerk reaction go to, well, that's something for government to handle. And I think that's what the majority of human beings think. Well, I remember our, you know, late afternoon basketball sessions where we were solving the problems of the world. And most of our solutions were, well, the government ought to do X about Y. <laughs> and that was like how we were, uh, you know, educated in the uh, school system. You know, like that's where you first look to solve problems. Well, and you're already paying for them, right? And you want to get a return on your investment. You want to get something out of it. You don't want to just be throwing money in a hole. So you want them to do something. And you think that government actually does anything positive. And that's the difference between, I think, us and everybody else is we recognize what government actually does. It's the big problem of the seen versus the unseen. Well, a lot of it comes into play when we think the government has some sort of um, power, like just automatically incorporated into it. That, you know, we, we lose the fact that uh, government only has the amount of power that we as individuals give it give to them. I mean, a lot of times when people are talking to me and I start ranting and raving about the government or about problems, people go, well, you know, well, what do we do about it? And I, you know, typically tell me, you know, you, there's not much you can do until enough people are fed up in order to no longer voluntarily surrender that power to the government, because the government has no power in which we, what we give to them. So what I'm what I'm getting at is that we consciously think or have it ingrained into us through school that the government has some sort of uh, power to fix problems, has some sort of power to do this stuff. And so initially what we think is, hey, you know, there's this problem, government should fix it. But in actuality, government doesn't have the problem to do anything other than steal money from people and create regulation. Yeah, and that's an excellent point. And Robert, I think I sent you a, a Larkin Rose video that ties right into this, where he was talking about the idea of, you know, even being principled, you still need to sort of sacrifice some of your own individual freedom in the effort of self-preservation. And until enough people are aware and are able to resist and, and feel like there's enough others willing to resist as well to where the state wouldn't have enough resources to prevent it, um, you sort of have to maintain your own uh, survival, you know, your own minimizing the amount of intrusion in your own life. Well, isn't that the whole idea of nullification? Uh, he was talking about people being 
so principled to anarchist philosophy that they won't even get a driver's license or pay any taxes or you know get a concealed carry permit, things like that. And I'll agree that that is a very principled stance, but it's also a stance that's going to get you a lot of uh, friction with the state and a lot of repercussions that unfortunately are uh, you know a reality. And I would prefer until such point to where they won't impact you by not doing them that you sort of have to pick your battles, you know? What I'm, what I'm saying is that isn't that the idea of nullification? Uh, everybody just stops obeying this one law and there's nothing that anybody can do about it because they can't throw everybody in a rape cage. I mean, that's that's the kind of the idea of, of nullification, at least nullifying a law, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. I guess in a sense, it'd be like an agorist nullification. Um, when when I hear the term nullification, I think in the Tom Woodsian sense of a state nullifying a federal law, more in the you know technical, yeah. political science aspect. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I didn't see that video, but it looked like the thumbnail of a recent video I did watch from Larkin where he's talking about where, you know, being nice to statists and not, you know, treating them with scorn where, you know, I, I tend to agree with them. I mean, there's room for both, like he says. He says there's room for both where you're, you know, kind of like an olive branch persona. But there's also room, I think, for treating their ideas as they should be treated like you are advocating for a raised gun for the enslavement of humanity for the violent subjugation of humanity you are advocating for that so i have no reason to you know even entertain your silly ideas and i should treat them with absolute scorn like they deserve yeah cut them off and, with the moral knee well yeah and so you're kind of shaming them right i mean maybe it'll help maybe it will work maybe it won't but you you i don't I don't think you're necessarily under any obligation to treat every adult with kid gloves and treat them all with, you know, Mr. Nice Guy and, hey, your ideas are equally valid. Man, violent subjugation of humanity, that's equally valid as being peaceful. No, it isn't. It's a marketplace of ideas. If you want to get your uh, ideas out there and implemented, maybe you start a petition or run for office yourself. <laughs> Well, I don't remember who said it, but I remember somebody on a, on a show I was listening to was talking about how uh, in a libertarian society, you could have um, a, you know, you could have a socialist commune. Uh, if, if it really works out well and you want to do it, you're free to go out and try it. However, in a socialist community, in a socialist world, you could not have a libertarian commune. And I think that is a, a, a stark difference between uh, just moral principles. You know, I, I, I think it's so cut and dry on on who has the moral ground in that argument. 100% correct. Circle gets the square. Well, let's get into our final summary and review. Robert, you want to uh, show Rocky how it's done? That can be his turn. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm always the guinea pig on this show. Um, <laughs> so The Smallest Defeat. Um, I would absolutely recommend this film. I would recommend it for people of all ages. Um, I thought it was well done, well acted, well voice acted. Uh, no part of the story seemed outrageously outlandish. I mean, other than the premise, but you got to accept, you know, this crazy world. But I don't think the movie like contradicts itself. It doesn't break its own rules. And the story unfolded in a very interesting way. And it struck me by how adult and how, you know, it had actually had a real kind of a claim and a statement to make. So I was pleasantly surprised, you know, question authority and question, you know, reality. And when you're what you see, what your individual experience trumps what, you know, some authority figure says. And that's it's really an individual argument. It's an it's a, it's a championing of the individual in this movie. And I'm always a champion of the individual, the most minority of minorities. And uh, so, yeah, I'm going to give this movie a strong 8.1. Highly recommended. It's not like my greatest movies of all time. Not 
I don't know if it'll crack the top 10 of the year, but strong film. Check it out. Highly recommended. Yeah, a lot of times whenever I'm I'm watching a movie, and I, I usually applicate this to horror movies on whether or not if it was actually scary, but I try to look at a movie if if at the reality aspect. And I mean, granted, there's they're yetis, so they're not real. But once again, we kind of talked about you know reaching across borders and 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 kind of melding different people, who's the outsider and who's not, and it kind of gave that look back and forth. And so, I mean, application of the real world, I really thought that it. Um, and nailed that down. The other thing that I usually look for in movies, I, I try to find out if there's any real big plot holes, something that um, just will totally dismantle the, the, the core story. And I didn't really see anything like that in there. Um, the other thing that I did really like um, is Migos, whenever he was questioned about what he saw, he did stand his ground. Uh, they said, well, if you're saying the stone is wrong, you know, are you saying the stone is wrong? And he said, well, if saying that I saw a small foot says that the stone is wrong, then yeah, that's, I guess that's what I'm saying. And then that's the point where he gets banished. And I think that, um, I think that little scene right there is probably one of the most powerful scenes in the whole uh, movie, because it's the point where one man stands up against the state and uh, he's that almost that David Goliath kind of, uh, contrast. And, uh, so I, I really liked it. Um, also another thing is that, you know, I, I try to look and see if it's something that I like my kids to watch. Uh, you know, it's not mindless. There's a good point to it. Um, I'm probably right there at about an eight as well. I think this was a, a pretty good kids movie and you don't get a lot of those nowadays. All right. Well, two big fans of uh, Anarcho Primitive uh, Yeti Society here. Uh, I'm going to say that uh, I also enjoyed this movie. And, and Robert, when we talked about doing this movie, you wanted to know what my kids thought of it. And I didn't get a, a numerical value out of them, but they did enjoy it. And in fact, they wanted to watch it again before I recorded this episode, but we ran out of time due to some behavioral issues on their part. And, and, and <laughs> anyway, they're, they're, they're all right. They're fun. Um, but I thought that this was really well done. Um, the, uh, I don't know much about Channing Tatum. I've, I've heard the name before. I'm not even sure what he looks like, but uh, I think that he did fine with the voice acting. Danny DeVito was, of course, great. Um, I will want to uh, discuss the merits of LeBron James at some point with you versus Michael Jordan, Robert, uh, in the uh, acting realm. Anytime. Anytime is talking time. <laughs> Um, but yeah, overall, it's a, it's a really well done film. I'm going to go with a 7.5 on this, and and I do recommend that people do check it out. Uh, it does have a little bit of a stink to it from the writers thinking that it's a slight against Trump or the right or something like that. So that, that does stick in my craw a little bit. But I do like the idea of you know questioning authority, uh, but just not with their authority that they're pushing in their media and their messaging here. I, I think that you do need to think for yourself and. Uh, believe your own eyes and use logic and reason to um, and have principles, right? And then and then apply the logic and reason from those principles, and then you'll see the world in a whole new way. So that I think is our uh, time for the show, the Last Nighters episode. What is this? Fifty-five. So you can find the show notes and more at lastnighters.com/slash-fifty-five. Our guest has been Rocky Ferenberg, and you can find his work, including his podcast, the Noisemaker Podcast, all linked from his website at rockyferenberg.com, which will be also listed on the show notes page down below the video and all of that stuff. Uh, any final comments before we say goodnight, everyone? Thanks for listening to another episode of The Last Nighters. It's been my pleasure hosting you. Come back next week. What are we going to be talking about next week, Daniel? You know, I don't even know. I think that we were going to try to uh, wrangle an old guest to come back and do Collateral or Salt, uh, the Angelina Jolie or the Tom Cruise movie. Mm. We also got Starship Troopers coming up soon, don't we? Yeah, that's just waiting on whenever you're ready after you've done the uh, the old uh audiobook yeah i was gonna do the audiobook i keep uh i don't know if i'm gonna do it now i maybe 
I could definitely do the movie, of course, but I, I, I don't know. All right, well, let's go with Collateral and see if we can get the guest. And if not, we'll just do it anyway, because it is a, a fun movie. We get Tom Cruise back on the show, Jamie Foxx. So it'll be fun. There's there's a good argument in that one. I remember so, it being a good movie. I don't remember the argument, but I'm, I'm, I'm down to watch it. All right, Collateral next week on The Last Nighters. Uh, Rocky, thank you for, for joining us for The Last Nighters, episode 55. You've been a great guest. No problem. Thank you guys for having me. Much appreciated. Good night from last night. All right. Continuing on the Actual Anarchy podcast for a few minutes, we might do some Kathleen Turner Overdrive after this for our Patreon supporters. You can support us at actualanarchy.com slash Patreon. And the future is now. At the end of the last narrative portion, I said, Robert, let's have that discussion. Uh, and much oh, like on. we had the MJ versus LeBron discussion at the end of Bring Death, it! Death Wish episode. What do you got, Daniel? Hmm? Let's talk about this. So Space Jam is, of course, the most famous Michael Jordan movie. And I, I think he was in a few more. Uh, what is he? They're two uh, you know, animated features, right? Yeah. Um, I remember watching Space Jam when I was a kid and enjoying it. However, comma, that is not a movie it. that has aged well, I don't think. No, I watched it like two years ago again uh, when it was like on Amazon Prime, you know, it was like included in, in the free viewing. And yeah, it's awful. It is an awful movie. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Kind of they were doing the, the whole Who Framed Roger Rabbit thing, right? But not nearly as well. Right, right. Yeah. And then I, I, from what I understand, prior to that, Jordan's... Um, theatrical experience was Haynes commercials, underwear commercials. Yeah. <laughs> With the Hitler stash, right? That was whenever you had the Hitler stash, right? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, he was he was winning championships uh, around that period of time. But, uh, and I, I still consider him the greatest of all time, though LeBron's not done uh, in uh Well, but LeBron basketball. has surpassed him in acting ability. Well, so LeBron, you said he was in some Amy Schumer movie, right? Yeah, and uh, some SNL alum guy. I want to say it was some kind of a dating romantic comedy type movie. Okay, well, it's a, a movie I've never seen and never will see. So <laughs> let's just talk about the animated versions here. So Space Jam versus the Smallfoot. Not even close. Smallfoot by a mile, yeah. by a country mile. Come on. And, and now, even specifically... Now, hold on. I got a question here, though, because LeBron played an actual animated character, but Michael Jordan played himself. And so Michael Jordan wasn't, he played in a partially animated movie, but he wasn't an animated character. So is it a fair contrast at that point? That is a good question. Yeah, I got to give the nod to LeBron. I mean, yeah, I, he hasn't. I mean, you, you watched Space Jam, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Right, Daniel? Was he like stiff and wooden and barely, you know, himself? Like, craptacular acting? Come on, be honest. It was pretty bad, yeah. I mean, it wasn't like Shazam bad, like Shaq bad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> was he reading off cue cards the whole time? <laughs> oh, shit. Probably, yeah. and I think this is before those, like, uh, glass-angled um, speech monitor things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is old school. It's probably written on, on cue cards in Sharpie. And, and, and see, and Jordan on has not, you know, continued his acting career. Whereas I think LeBron, once he's done playing basketball, he's probably going to continue to get acting roles. I'm just, I'm guessing. But Jordan, after he was done that, you know, a little bit of acting, and then he did the commercials, and now he's pretty much just disappeared into, well, I mean, he's still probably active in the NBA somehow, like with the Wizards or whatever, but... He the Bobcats, not... I think. He's in Charlotte. I think he's a partial owner or... 
president or something. Okay. But but nobody's knocking on his door to be in some movie that is just not happening. I mean, I know LeBron's got a high stature. A lot of people still watch him. You know, he's a big personality. He's not very intelligent in terms of economics, but a few <laughs> people are. It's fine. Yeah, and he is in LA now. Yeah. So yeah, I expect to so see he'll a probably be of, yeah yeah doing a whole bunch more movies. Yeah. Well, I, I'll agree. I will. I will tend towards LeBron being the goat of the NBA. Uh, well, he's above Shaq film. and Jordan. <laughs> Come on, Shaq isn't even. It's like you know. The real question is: Is Ray Allen uh, as Jesus Shuttlesworth? Yeah, he got game right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's the that's the gold standard as far as NBA players in in. Uh, but again, he's playing a basketball player. But yeah, no, you're right. Well, let's be honest. Jordan was playing a basketball player, not just any basketball player. Jordan was playing himself. And so far, he the only one, he's right above Shaq in that. So they're kind of at a tie for last place. So just because a basketball player plays a basketball player doesn't mean that they're going to do the best job. That's kind of like saying uh, uh, Scarlett Johansson can't play a transgender because she's not a transgender. Mm. Yeah, you don't know her experience or your experience. <laughs> <laughs> all right well i think we're uh, probably at a good point where we can get into some caffeine turn overdrive and get even let you let our hair down even more so this has been episode what is it 112 of the show so you can find the show some more at actualanarchy.com slash 112 our guest has been rocky ferenberg and uh you've been a lot of fun thank you very much for recommending oh, this small foot and joining us for this discussion and thank um, you guys for having me yeah no problem let's get into that caffeine turn overdrive shall we Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do